It's been a go-to joke for so long that it's not even funny anymore. Congress can't get anything done. It's been covered for decades by late-night stand-ups, Saturday Night Live, and probably your favorite show has had a laugh at Congress's expense, too. But the Republican takeover of the House of Representatives means the U.S. again has divided government. And in today's hyper-partisan era, that means finding broad agreement in Washington will be really hard to do. What happened was he figured out what to do with that group, that small group of members of his conference who said they would never, ever vote for Kevin McCarthy. They didn't, but they voted present, which changed the math and really cleared the way for McCarthy to get by with a smaller number. Arizona's congressional delegation is helping set the tone. Republican Representative Andy Biggs helped lead a rebellious faction within the GOP just over the House speakership that forced days of drama over that normally routine matter. Republican Paul Gosar is among those who have clamored for aggressive investigations of the Biden administration and Senator Kirsten Sinema's defection from the Democratic Party gives the Senate a new operating dynamic as well. While Capitol Hill adjusts to a new normal, important issues like the debt ceiling and border security hang over the nation's unresolved policy agenda. Welcome to The Gaggle, a politics podcast by the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. I'm your host, Ron Hansen. I cover national politics for the Republic. Today, I'm joined virtually by two political experts to help us make sense of what to expect from Congress, Wendy Schilling and Norman Ornstein. Professor Schilling is a professor of political science and director of the Taubman Center for American Politics and Policy at Brown University. Dr. Ornstein is a senior fellow emeritus at the American Enterprise Institute, where he's been focusing on the U.S. Congress for over 40 years. I want to start by asking you what we should expect from the current Congress. And I want to start with the rapidly escalating issue of the debt ceiling. The Treasury Department is already using extraordinary measures to manage government bill paying. And we know that by summer, it will run out of creative ways to do so. So how much should ordinary taxpayers or residents really care about this issue and why? The debt ceiling is a very important issue to almost everybody who participates in the American economy. And it is because the way that we pay for the deficit, the federal deficit, where we spend more money than we take in, is to basically issue new opportunities to invest in the United States government through mostly, but not exclusively, treasury bills. So you can have that in a savings bond, you can have that in your retirement um, but that economy, the economy that relies on the United States to be a, a predictable and stable payer of its debt, um, that floods through the entire economic system, mortgages, auto loans, any way of borrowing money is predicated on some basic guarantee, and that guarantee is the federal government. So if there was a threat to that guarantee, you could find institutions in our economy starting to panic, like the stock market, like um, home loaners, like banks. You know, those institutions will start to pull back if they really have any true fears that the United States will not meet its obligation to pay its debt. And just to step back for a moment, 
most every other country, every significant democracy, basically they all have debt at a federal level, um, but they basically manage it by trying to make sure that their expenditures and their uh, revenues come close to matching. And if there are debts, they finance them. We do the same, except we add in this artificial debt limit, which is that we have a certain amount of federal debt and there's a ceiling. And every time we bump up against it because we're spending more than we're taking in, we have to increase that ceiling. Now, it's artificial basically because we've already accrued all of these debts. And if you don't pay the debts, you're going to be in default. We've been paying those debts, but we have this artificial ceiling. In 2011, the new Tea Party movement, which had taken over the House of Representatives, decided that they were going to use the fight over the debt limit, a belief that they could force Barack Obama, the president, to agree to pretty draconian cuts in spending and more tax cuts by saying, if you don't go along with us, we won't approve an increase in the debt ceiling and the full faith and credit of the United States will crater and we'll all suffer, but you're going to have to do this. We came right up to the edge of the abyss. Uh, And then John Boehner, the speaker, pulled it back, recognizing that the main reason taxpayers should be concerned about that is that if we default, we're probably going to have a global depression, and now it would be even worse. Boehner pulled us back, but that was probably the beginning of the end of his speakership. Now we have another crisis, and I should note that back in 2011, Kevin McCarthy was one of the leaders of the Republican Party in the House, and he pushed us to get close to that edge, just coming close, even though we didn't. We didn't default on our debts. We got our credit rating for the United States for the first time in history downgraded, and the added interest costs from that probably hurt American taxpayers to the tune of close to $20 billion. That's just coming close. The Tea Party people from 2011 look like milquetoasts compared to the Freedom Caucus people now, and Kevin McCarthy is not capable of pulling them back from the brink. Indeed, he's the guy who pushed us close to it in 2011. So we have a greater fear of breaching the debt ceiling than we've had really certainly since 2011, probably in our lifetimes. And the global economy is in a precarious enough position that this is very, very serious business. Speaking of the Freedom Caucus types, one of them is their former leader, Representative Andy Biggs, the Republican from Arizona. He has already sketched out his thinking on the issue, basically saying he does not want a vote on a clean debt ceiling bill. He wants this to be part of some sort of concessions made to the spending demands that House Republicans are looking for. Talk about the kinds of members that are involved in that kind of position taking. Are they vulnerable in any way? Are they in very safe districts? Are they likely to fold as the 11th hour approaches? Looking at the history of Andy Biggs, of Paul Gosar, of other firebrands, and I'll use the nicer term for them, uh, in the House, they're not fearful of breaching the debt ceiling. And their demands that they're interested in making, which include pretty draconian cuts in almost every government program, including Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid, 
uh, along with most of the other domestic spending and very serious cuts in defense that, among other things, would cripple the aid we send to Ukraine, but do a whole lot more. And they also want more tax cuts along with it. These are not people who are likely to say, you know, we're going to be responsible here. We'll pull back from it. Do they pay a price politically? As you know, the districts that have been drawn in Arizona make Biggs and uh, Gosar, among others, pretty safe. The only question would be whether there's a challenge in a primary. And for the most part, what we've seen is the challenges in primaries tend to come from the right. And there ain't anybody who's going to get to the right of Andy Biggs uh, or Paul Gosar. So we've got a, a problem here. And the real question is going to be not what a Biggs would do. It's going to be what the less radical members of the Republican Party do to try and move us closer to a clean increase in the debt ceiling. Now, we had a way out of this before. And indeed, the way that it worked in the House, at least during the time the Democrats were in the majority, was a rule that had been instituted by their majority leader. And it was a Steny Hoyer that when you pass a budget, which includes a certain amount of spending and a certain amount of revenue, if there's increase in the debt, it automatically expands the debt ceiling. The Republicans repealed that rule. Now, we had another opportunity to do something about this when Democrats had the majorities in the House and the Senate after the election, when we knew that the House was going to become a Republican majority, and we knew that we were going to have a threat to bring us close to default, there was an, another way out of this. And this was a, a change that had actually occurred once before. And ironically, in many ways, uh, it was uh, brought about by Mitch McConnell, who I might note, even though in the minority in the Senate has said we will never default, but he doesn't have control over the House Republicans. But what McConnell had done in the past was to say, here's what we'll do. We'll let the president increase the debt ceiling. Congress can block it with a joint resolution, but the president can veto that. And in effect, all the president would need then is one third of one house. And it would take this issue away if we could make it permanent. There was a real effort to do that during this lame duck session after the November election, before January 3rd, when the Republicans took the house. And it got blocked in the Senate because the Republicans weren't gonna go along and they didn't have all 50 Democrats. The two Democrats who balked at getting rid of this issue, this threat to hold the debt ceiling, the full faith and credit of the United States hostage, were Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema. It's, if you're old enough, it's like watching a movie you've seen before. I mean, this dialogue about using the debt ceiling to cut the federal budget started really in 1985 and 1986, 1987 in the United States Senate with very conservative uh, members like Phil Graham and Warren Rudman uh, from Texas and New Hampshire. And they passed an automatic budget cut program, the Graham-Rudman Act, and that was in conjunction with the debt ceiling. They said, we won't pass the debt ceiling unless you pass our Graham-Rodman budget cuts. So the Republicans have been making this argument for almost 40 years. And we see it pop up under Democratic presidents now, but under Republican presidents, it sort of goes under the radar and the Republicans just raise the debt ceiling. So it's become partisan whereas I think it really was ideological and philosophical in the 1980s. So Biggs comes from a long line of Republicans who want to cut 
federal spending because they want to cut the size of the federal government. Do both parties have a point with this? Republicans are saying that they are concerned about uh, what they view as wasteful government spending or excessive levels of future growth in spending, especially on entitlements. Democrats are saying, hey, this uh, issue only comes up when a Democrat is in the White House. We know that this is a pretty serious economic issue if the country were to go into default. How do we bridge what both parties are sort of pressing as their main points on this? Well, I think voters have to pay really close attention to this rhetorical justification for these positions. The Republicans are willing to take on more federal debt when it supports a tax cut. So we've, we saw that with George W. Bush. We saw that with Donald Trump. A big tax cut creates you know, less revenue and a bigger deficit because the government still has a lot of obligations that it has to meet, particularly, as you mentioned, Ron, in entitlement spending, which is basically Social Security, Medicare, the, the health insurance program for people over the age of 65, for the most part, and Medicaid, which is um, a low-income health insurance program. So these are fundamental entitlements, and people rely on them to live, literally. So uh, the Republicans think these programs are too big. But they always, you know, put a little caveat in their rhetoric about it that they don't want to cut anybody's benefits now over the age of 65. And this is very important for states like Arizona that have a fairly large percentage of people over the age of 65. So they're not willing to cut those benefits because those voters tend to lean Republican by about 10 points in most federal elections. They want to restructure the program so that people are 55 and over, for example, or 50 and over will not expect the same extent of benefits that people over the age of 65 have now. So it's very complicated politics for the Republicans in how they want to cut entitlements. But the bottom line is we spend too much money. We spend too much money because we spend more money than we have. And that always makes us vulnerable in terms of lifting the federal debt ceiling. So it would make sense for both sides to come together to say, where can we cut what can we do to get back on a better fiscal health trajectory so that we don't play this brinkmanship game uh, as repeatedly as we do? One last question on it. Given the cast of characters that we see on both sides of the aisle and in both chambers, are you optimistic that they work out a deal ahead of a default? I think the capacity to work out a deal sooner rather than later will really rest on the way that the Democrats message this issue. You know, the Democrats have messaging challenges. The Republicans are usually quite unified on their messaging. And the Democrats have to hammer home how devastating breaching the debt limit will be to the very people that tend to vote Republican. If they can get the message to people over the age of 65 in particular that your Social Security or the COLA that we just saw, a big COLA for inflation, go to people over the age of 65, that COLA will go away. That program will be in jeopardy. Medicare will be in jeopardy. You know, hammer home to selective constituencies that have leaned uh, in the Republicans' direction and make them activated so that they get in touch with people like Andy Biggs, like people like Matt Gates, people like Lauren Boebert uh, and Kevin McCarthy and say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We didn't sign up for this. We don't want you to take this step. You know, let's pull back from the brink and cut a deal. That is a Democratic winning strategy to put pressure on the Republicans. 
I want to shift to border security and immigration. This is another long festering issue. It's it's something that is not new in Washington. It's also seemingly the uh, Gordian knot. We can't ever find a way to move forward, it seems. Do you get the sense that there's any kind of opening for any change of note on immigration or border security, especially given the reality of the House being controlled by Republicans? Is there space to do something on that? I wish I could be optimistic about it, but I'm not. Remember, again, going back, during the Obama years, we actually had a really commendable bipartisan effort in the Senate that was led by, among others, Lindsey Graham, uh, the Republican from South Carolina. It got almost 75 votes in the Senate from both parties. It went to the House controlled by the Republicans and died there. The interest in actually doing something constructive about immigration and the border is simply not there with House Republicans. They want to get action on the border. And what they want on the border is to impeach and remove Alejandro Mayorkas, the uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, and build a wall. House Republicans want to use the border issue as one of their major wedge issues. They want to slam Joe Biden and his administration. They want to haul in Mayorkas, the Secretary of Homeland Security, and they've already talked about impeaching him. They want to rail against open borders and all the fentanyl coming in. It's kind of funny when you see tweets from House Republicans about all the fentanyl being seized at the border as evidence that it's an open border where it's being seized there. But achieving a constructive bipartisan agreement to do something here, including some of the things, and I will commend Kirsten Cinema for finding some ways of dealing with the issue of the dreamers, some of the undocumented people who are here, finding a solution, which is extremely difficult. There are no easy answers to the thousands and thousands of asylum seekers who are coming here. That's not easy. But constructive legislative action is just not in the cards for House Republicans right now. That's not a part of what they want. And remember, this is a party that in 2020 didn't even do a national party platform. They decided that issues just weren't what they were gonna concern themselves with and problem solving. It's all about attacks right now. One of the people who have really inserted themselves into the immigration debate more forcefully at the end of the last Congress and continues to have an interest in trying to move forward in this Congress is Senator Kirsten Sinema, who became an independent in December. Her term expires in 2024. We had news this week that Democratic Representative Ruben Gallego has formally entered that race to challenge for that seat. Multiple Republicans are also weighing a run in that race as well. What are your thoughts on the possibility of a three-way race and the personalities that we have in Ruben Gallego, Kirsten Cinema, and what this means for any kind of legislative prospects in the near term? Well, I mean, Kirsten Sinema could make this issue to say a border security, border control, border flow and immigration, this set of issues, her signature focus of energy for the next two years. You know, we have uh, a senator from Rhode Island that uh, Sheldon Whitehouse that has been giving climate change speeches for years 
almost on a daily basis when he can. It has become sort of a, a funny thing to talk about, but it set him up as someone who advocated for Rhode Island, which is a coastal state. And you can see Kirsten Cinema doing the same thing. And because she's already got a lot of national press and a lot of ink, you know, it's possible Arizonans say we want her because this is the biggest number one issue to us and she's focusing on it. And that will put pressure on the Democrats in the Senate because their majority is quite precarious and they can't really afford to lose anybody. They have a quote unquote 51 seat majority. But we know that there's any, at any time Diane Feinstein could resign from California. There could be gaps in that majority. They're going to need cinema, even though now she's technically an independent. And if I were cinema and I wanted to really cement my hold on the seat, I would focus like a laser beam on this very issue and push the Senate offer amendments any chance she can, push the leadership, uh, and try to get one or two other senators, whether they're Republican or Democrat, to join her in that effort. And I think that she could be very effective. And even though, you know, because Arizona is such a purple state, you'd say normally the party candidate could win the seat easily. But I don't see that in Arizona. I see Arizona, particularly for someone who's well-known, like Kirsten Cinema, saying, we're going to vote for the person that we think is fighting for the issues that we care about most. And and in Arizona, it seems that immigration, border security, water access, for example, um, and even the housing situation in, in Arizona, these three things are vital. So I see her as still having quite a strong shot of keeping the seat as an independent. We look at Angus King, obviously, in Maine, and we look at Bernie Sanders in Vermont, and it can be done. We're really in uh, strange territory here. It's entirely possible that Kirsten Cinema will not run for re-election. She is in a kind of limbo position right now. And we know that there's an awful lot of hostility toward her, especially from Democrats. I think uh, if she had stayed as a Democrat, had decided to run again, the likelihood of her winning a primary against Ruben Gallegos was close to zero. Now, if it's a three-way race, if she runs as an independent and you have a Republican and Gallegos running as a Democrat, I think if we were handicapping that right now, we would probably say the most likely winner would be the Republican. It's uh, probably, I would say, second in line might be cinema, that she might be able to pull out a plurality if most of the Democrats vote for Gallego, but independents and Republicans split. But I don't think she would have a great chance of winning. So I'm skeptical that she'll run again. My guess is that she is going to leave the Senate and probably take some very high paid position, whether it's as an anchor on Fox News or uh, working for a hedge fund. I'm not sure, but none of us knows what is in the cards for her. But of course, the fact that she became an independent and is potentially going to be in a three-way race makes it much less likely that a Democrat could prevail in a contest of that sort. So we're all going to have to wait and see what her intentions are. And my guess is that will uh, be taking us right as close as it could be to the finish line. We'll have to wait to see how that plays itself out. But is there any guidance from history in terms of any race you can remember that may be a good analog here where we have an independent who is the incumbent, a three-way race with major party candidates? Is, is there anything that you can remember that seems appropriate to, to look back on? In many ways, if we're looking at a race where you had somebody who was not going to win a major party nomination, but was still able to prevail, it would probably be Lisa Murkowski in Alaska. 
Now, it's not an exact analogy. Lisa Murkowski didn't become an independent. She was knocked off in a Republican primary by somebody from the far right and was able to run as a write-in and able to secure enough support from Democrats and, and mainstream Republicans in Alaska to prevail and to win. But she did not start out with the deep hostility of the core of her own party to begin with. Now, you know, we have two independents in the Senate right now, other than Kristen Sinema. Uh, they're both caucus with the Democrats. They're Angus King of Maine and Bernie Sanders of Vermont. But of course, the reality for them is that while they have run and won as independents, they haven't had opposition from the Democratic Party because they're seen as certainly independent in their party affiliation, but they are mostly voting with Democrats on most of the things that come along. So we don't have a really good analogy that would lead to the likelihood of a cinema victory as an independent, not somebody who emerged from nowhere and could build support from both sides. I think she has done enough things to create hostility with the core of the Democratic Party. She's not going to get support there but she could pull enough support to keep a Democrat from winning. I want to go back to the House for just a moment. Democrats stripped Representative Paul Gosar of his committees in 2021 after he boosted an animated social media post that depicted the slaying of Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a violent attack on President Biden. Republicans have reinstalled Gosar on his committees. They also have moved forward with Andy Biggs, both of whom are now on the House Government Oversight Committee. That committee has promised a number of investigations moving forward into President Biden, his son, and other matters. Does that committee have credibility? Will they be able to do serious investigations if it's involving people who are often seen as marginal, like Gosar and Biggs? Ron, I think this is a million dollars doesn't go as far as it used to, but this is the million dollar question uh, for the next six to eight months. Will the Republican Party, particularly led by people like Paul Gosar, who is viewed to be very extreme, although was having a very collegial chat with AOC on the floor during the speaker's voting uh, marathon, which uh, lots of people were looking at, like, what is happening? How come she's talking to this man who sent that meme out about her? Um, but they were having a strategic discussion about what would happen with voting for the speaker. So that was very interesting. You know, politicians can do some really awful things to each other in the name of politics and then be, you know, together on the floor talking about the day's voting. So this is a, it was a curious development. But that's a million dollar question, because if the GOP overreaches and they focus a lot on investigations and they, and they threaten to derail the debt ceiling at the very same time, the independent voters who still stuck with the Democrats in 2022 by a margin of basically three to three and a half percent across the country, who stuck with the Democrats in 18, in 20 and 22, then I think that can do very significant damage to the House majority and then Republican efforts on messaging because independents don't want frivolous exercises. They don't want such division. But the Republicans have mastered something called negative partisanship, which is a term that a lot of political scientists use, which is that you literally demonize people in the other party to the point 
where even if you've got liars like George Santos, or you've got insurrectionists, or you've got people who are threatening violence against each other, Republican core voters will say, I'd still rather have them than have the other side. The problem for the Republican Party is that the actual core of Republican voters is shrinking on them. So you can have that kind of loyalty, but if your base gets smaller, which it is getting smaller, then you really start to struggle to win local and national elections. I want to switch gears uh, one last time here to talk about two of our incoming freshman representatives, Eli Crane from Northeastern Arizona and Juan Siscomani from the Southeastern Tucson area. Crane drew attention in his first days on the job by being one of the holdouts resisting Kevin McCarthy's bid for the speakership. Siscomani made a wave of his own by nominating McCarthy at one point. And he ended up on the House Appropriations Committee, which is not a bad way to start. Do either of these men stand out for any reason to you as freshmen to keep an eye on? You know, it was uh, unusual for Crane to be playing that role. It's not unusual, frankly, for uh, somebody running to run against their own party's leadership. There were a number of Democrats who did that against Nancy Pelosi although she managed to maneuver around so it didn't take 15 votes to win. Oftentimes, that's just a kind of showy thing to try and stand out a little bit. It's not clear to me that beginning that either of them had, and it's certainly a plum to get on the Appropriations Committee, but if you're uh, on an Appropriations Committee, that's quite likely to lead to a series of stalemates with the Senate and possibly government shutdowns, that may not be the, uh, the plum assignment that you uh, think it is. But obviously, these are names that are known right now. And for uh, a freshman class, it wasn't nearly as large as Republicans wanted or expected. To be able to stand out early on, whether it's for good reason or bad, is still something that makes them unusual in that freshman group. But I'm not expecting that we're going to see stardom emerge for either of them in the short run. Very good. Thanks so much for taking time to chat with us today. If people want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, both on uh, Twitter and uh, post. Uh, it's at Norm Ornstein. Um, at Prof W. Schiller. Uh, so um, feel free to interact or follow me or send me questions or DM me and that'd be terrific. Um, I'd love to hear from people. That is it for this week, Gaggle listeners. Do you have questions you want us to answer or topics you want us to cover? Reach out to us via email at thegaggle at arizonarepublic.com. That's one word all spelled out. Or give us a call at 602 602- If you like the show, please leave us a review and share it with a friend. You can follow me on Twitter at Ronald J. Hansen, that's H-A-N-S-E-N. The editor and producer of today's episode is Amanda Liberto. You can follow her at Amanda Liberto, that's L-U-B-E-R-T-O. Thanks for listening to The Gaggle, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com. We'll see you next week.